mockingbird won't sing Mama's gonna buy you a diamond ring And on this happy Halloween Eve, we have the Bookwells crew. I can't even speak. The Bookwells crew together again. We have the handsome Thomas Steenberg, the super intelligent and handsome Bill Reed. And you got me. And uh, yeah, so we're going to discuss Halloween tonight uh, on a Bigfoot kind of slant to see if, uh, you know, there's any kind of a comparison of topics between uh, witches and goblins and things that go bump in the night and your furry forest denizens. And uh, I'd like to go attack the psychology of this whole thing first, you know. I mean, uh, as a kid, does participating in Halloween, uh, you know, and the pursuit of Sasquatch later on in life as an adult, does that stimulate some of the same needs that we have? You know, are they both uh, kindred to each other? I'm just putting it out there. I don't know. I don't no. know. No. <laughs> the center. Halloween, Halloween ghost ghouls and creepy things. And of course, the men without bones are uh, just fun little stories. Whereas the Sasquatch is a zoological mystery that needs to be solved. Yeah, but I mean, isn't the Sasquatch just another version of an adult boogeyman? Maybe to the weird and wonderful and the inmates running the asylum, yes, but to me, no. So I'm I'm one of the inmates in the asylum then because uh, I, I I did you know not surprisingly I disagree with Thomas on 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 this point. <laughs> I <laughs> I think when you go back far enough, especially if you're talking about childhood, it's the mystery. When you're a kid, whether it's ghosts, goblins, the the overall joy of Halloween, you're looking at the unknown, you know, yeah. the, the could have beans, what might be out there, what could be out there. And there's that little bit of, of scaring you. Like, you know, the, is that old lady that, that lives alone at the end of the street? Is she really a witch? You know, do I have to worry about what candy she gives us? And then the, the, you know, the, the monster in the woods, the wild man legends and, and a lot of, when you go back, you know, the modern Sasquatch, you know, it goes back to wild men legends found throughout the world that that can be equated to what we think of Sasquatch downs and other wild men legends that are not the same as Sasquatch, but still that legend. And I think when you're a kid with Halloween, it's that little bit of, you know, you have the relative safety of your of your neighborhood with that little bit of yeah. fear factor of the gloves and goblins. And for some people, 
you know, they have that in the woods, you know, that little bit of fear factor. Or it's also with that when you're a kid, you're exploring your world, and that includes the supernatural, what's real, what's not. And when you become an adult, if you're a Sasquatch researcher, whether, like for me, I don't care whether the Sasquatch exists or doesn't exist. What's important to me is the question. And I think that curiosity that you have as a kid for things that go bump in the night and that curiosity to find out if Sasquatch exists, I think they're related. They're not quite the same, but I think I think there is a relationship there. I think uh, that uh, I'm leaning more towards an inbred, in, in, embedded, inbred, embedded uh, curiosity between a child and the adult. I mean, who didn't enjoy famous monsters of film land when the magazine came out, you know, and putting together plastic Aurora models from Universal Studios. I built, I built, I built every one of them, but I'm not sure about the invisible man as I could never find him, (laughs) but I know I built every one of them and I I had a lot of fun too, you know, I had three of them. I had a, Dracula was the classic Bela Lugosi poem. Oh, yeah. Yep. Of uh, Boris Karloff, Frankenstein monster, and, of course, the Lon Chaney's Wolfman. And the thing I remember most is I always had to repair them at least once a week because every time my mother vacuumed my bedroom, she'd obviously hit my bookshelf and they'd come tumbling down. <laughs> I don't forget. And the creature from the Black Lagoon. <laughs> yeah. Never got, never got that one. I only had the three. But oh, yeah, you don't know what you're missing, man. Yeah. But, I mean, Frankenstein, uh, the werewolf, and Dracula were the top three. They, they, everyone knew that. But, you know. Uh, okay, so does the interest in Sasquatch, I think you you really answered this, Bill, that does the interest of uh, Sasquatch become an adult version of gluing monster models together and reading horror magazines and watching bad movies I, I, I look at it this way. I never went out to prove that vampires or I had a wonder that vampires were real or not or werewolves or anything like that. But I'm, the Sasquatch to me is, is just a, whether or not there's another animal out there. So I never put, but spiritually, I guess, and emotionally, you could say there are similarities. Yeah. 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 I know. Well, I, I get you. I, I wasn't I talking thought of it yeah. that way, but yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it's it, once again, you know, so we started to simplify complex answers a lot. And I think with Sasquatch, and, and again, I think it's on the, you know, with the individual. I mean, there's some individuals that, and I'm part of it as well, that look at it from a scientific taxonomical point of view. Is there an undiscovered creature out there? So you can have that scientific curiosity. You can also have People like when I was growing up, I loved mythology. Uh, you know, I studied the <coughs> Same here. mythologies all over the world. Yep. So, you know, you can look at it as Sasquatch from the mythological standpoint. So, I, I think a well rounded researcher or somebody that's well rounded in their, in their wanting to find out, you know, investigate Sasquatch, you have to have that scientific curiosity. You have to have a bit of that, you know, cultural anthropology, studying the mythology, and then that childlike things that go bump in the night. I, I think it's a combination. I don't think it's one thing. I, I think if it was just one thing, 
you'd probably get bored of it fairly quickly or you'd be a fairly one-dimensional person. Could it be just a part of our society in which we live in, in, uh, in uh, say, um, is it a mindset, a mindset, a North American mindset, Halloween, Sasquatch? I mean, most Sasquatch are reported in uh, North America, some in Mexico. Um, a mindset for uh, North Americans who've been steeped in horror films and uh, fascination with the paranormal and the occult and everything, like nowhere else in the world. Are those two uh, related at all to each other? I mean, if you look at Halloween, Halloween uh, is observed in North America. Of course, Mexico got its Day of the Dead. Uh, the British Isles, uh, that, that's it. That's pretty well it. You know, the, the Celtic background. Tell, tell you the honest truth, Halloween is the recent arrival in the British Isles. Mm-hmm. They, they never used to do that. Like before the, the 1990s, they never ever really recognized Halloween or had Halloween in the United Kingdom because it was so close to Guy Fawkes Day. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Remember, yeah. remember the fifth of November, right? Uh-huh. Uh, uh-huh. And, but, it, but it became popular through the media and, of course, Hollywood. And of course, we have our ongoing debate: Did Halloween really start in the United States, or did it start in Canada and went to the United States? <laughs> you know, I, I think it started. I think it started uh, mainly in the British Isles because this is sort of an offshoot of Celtic. Celtic uh, stuff from Ireland, actually. Yeah, yeah well, uh, yeah, yeah. Well, Celtic is the British Isles. And, like, France doesn't have uh, Halloween. They never have had Halloween, and they yeah. don't till this day. And many other countries uh, don't have Halloween. But I was comparing that, okay, the countries that do have Halloween have a heck of a lot more sightings of Sasquatch than countries that don't. I'm well, just trying to see if there's any... You can say Trans- Transylvania never had Halloween either, but every day is Halloween. <laughs> yeah, but I think we're, we're narrowing our scope yeah. too much. I mean, I, I personally don't think Halloween itself has any connection with Sasquatch sightings. I, I think some of the base level curiosity is common between them. But if you go to other parts of the world, I mean, you have the Yowie, you have the Almasti, you have the Yeti. And in many of these other that don't have a history of Sasquatch-like creatures, then they might have other creatures, whether it's werewolves or vampires or whatever. I mean, there's, there's wild man of the woods legends are, are throughout the world. And I think, I think we do ourselves a disservice when we try to compare apples to apples across the world when sometimes it's apples to oranges is the proper comparison. And, you know, I know like in, in and you also have to look at from a cultural thing in some cultures, especially like in some areas of South, South America and that where they're deeply superstitious, they may not have one central boogeyman type they may have numbers like i had a friend that came from peru that absolutely 100 believed in the haitian type 
witchcraft type uh, zombies, um, believed in curses. He 100% believed that he had a cousin that was killed by a curse from a, a, a local sorcerer from where he lived. So I, I think we, we just, we narrow it down too much. I think it's nice to say we have the same curiosity as a kid that leads us to go down that path, but a direct connection between Sasquatch and, and, and Halloween, I, I, I think it's tenuous at best. Yeah, I think, other than people who are camping around Halloween time and telling stories around the fire, there's probably a Sasquatch story too, throwing in with the men without bones and other things. But <laughs> other than that, uh, no, as a matter of fact, when someone reports something uh, within Halloween itself or two days before or just after, I kind of keep that in the back of my mind as, you know, okay, Halloween series, this guy trying to make up something because it's Halloween time. And I've had had that happen in the past. Yeah. But, but I, you know, I, I think, I think what makes like, you know, I'm in, I'm, I'm in my fifties. I enjoy Halloween. I think part of my personality that makes me enjoy Halloween is probably shares a lot of the, the the core reasons and why I'm interested in Sasquatch. Mm -hmm. So I think our personalities are what does it, but I think, you know, um, as you I, I, I don't know. I, I think they're, they're sort of different. Well, I guess my question sort of is why is there such, um, such a love, such an investment, such acknowledgement of Sasquatch in North America when it's not like that anywhere else in the world. I think it's there's there's two things that that really do it, with the exception of you know the Soviet Union and Siberia. Mm -hmm. The large you know the, the best thing about Canada is that there's nobody here, and nowhere when you talk about in North America, we have huge areas of boreal forest. You know, the state of Alaska, if it was a country, would be the 16th largest country in the world. Mm -hmm. It would be, you know, the third biggest province in Canada if it was one of our provinces. So when you're looking at the, the, the size we have, it makes it just right for something in the forest. So then you look at, okay, what are you going to make in the forest? So maybe in a place like South America, they might have, 90 foot anacondas that are in the forest, or they might have, you know, the, you know, the giant spiders or, you know, their megatherium still running around. Well, here we have to have something that would be in a forest. Myth would make it more anthropological. So we could have people, you know, in some areas they might think of the cave bear, but really when you look at here with the fossils, or sorry, not the fossils, the forest, and then in 1967, we had the PGF. And whether you believe the PGF is real, fake, or you sit on the fence of it, that has become the focal point of Sasquatch research in North America. Everyone our age, when you were a kid, you saw, you probably saw it in search of when they had it on there. You probably saw the BBC special every time you saw a show on mysteries or monsters. It was the PGF. So that was, 
you know, that was being programmed into, you know, for at least mm -hmm. 54 years, we've had, yeah. we've had the PGF programmed into it. So it only makes sense that that's what people think of. Like in look in Scotland, you know, their biggest cryptid is Loch Ness. And really what started with that, you could go back to the surgeon's photo. I mean, they had stories before that, but the surgeon's photo became that one photo that in every book on cryptids you see in every show you saw and that turned i think made nessie sort of the de facto cryptid of scotland because it was out there in television prior to you know 50 years ago we really you know radio was the big mass media thing but since you've had tv which has come up with our generation when the first images we saw for possible real life monsters has been the PGF. The PGF, yeah. And then you're right, the surgeon's photo. And I, I would say the Dinsdale footage about 30 years after that for Loch Ness, I'll go over to the folding film of 1967. That's the one you always saw over and over and over again. And I, and I think, unlike the Ogopogo, which you know, it's really a, reg a regional thing for most of us. But I think when it comes to the PGF, there is probably the PGF and the surgeon's photo are probably, in the world of cryptozoology, the most shown on TV of, of anything. And I think when you have, and the PGF has been shown all over the world. You know, if there's a TV, you've probably seen that picture. And I think that's why it's become so culturally ingra in, ingrained in North America is it came along at the right time when, you know, TV was first becoming was a, a big, big thing. Well, and, and, and if they couldn't show the film, you'd always see the still 352. Well, I must, uh, yeah, I must admit that uh, it's not the, the PG film per se itself uh, that attracted me to this a number of years ago. In, in a way, it was, though, because with me, I never saw the film. I just saw the Argosy magazine that first ran the story. I found it in a wood box at a cabin. And I sat down and looked through it, and I said, oh, my God, thank God there's nothing like that here on the East Coast, you know. And I pretty well forgot about it after that. But then going back to what Bill said, a year or two later, these, uh, well, three or four years later, these uh, In Search Of and Mystery and all these TV programs came out. Even and before so that, even, even before that, um, first time I saw the PGF, I'm positive, was on a show that was on in the late 1960s called you ask for it mm -hmm. yeah and uh where people would write in about certain subjects and they do something on the subject that people write in about it and uh bigfoot is called the united states someone wrote in about it and they featured the pgf so are we that same episode they showed the entire second roll of film too and that's the only time i ever saw that wow. yeah so are we to assume that the only difference between North America and the rest of the world, as far as the popularity of uh, Bigfoot or Sasquatch goes, is that Bigfoot and Sasquatch in North America was more of a media darling? Mm. I think so. I yeah. think so. Yeah, yeah. 
You know, I think, I mean, you look at, you look at Australia, you know, probably, I mean, they've, they've had the stories of the bunny yip and Yowie, but I think if you were going to ask most Australians, probably their biggest cryptid down there would be the thalassine. And where is that? I think with the, again, it's part of a collective desire to say that we didn't actually drive that, that marsupial into extinction, but also because it, it's shown quite often on TV as well. You know, we've all seen the, was it 1933 or 1936? I forget which picture of the last thylacine running back and forth in its little cage, you know, mm-hmm. and, I, and I think that's what, what does it if is what is in your region, you know, historically culturally relevant, you know, and I, and I, I don't know enough about other countries to, to, to say what they would have. Like, I don't know if the Scandinavian countries, if, if trolls, for example, are, Mm-hmm. Or something that comes up in in, uh, in you know in their cultural relevance. I do know in in New Zealand they've they've you know a lot of their cryptids are around the you know, the sea. So it's I think it's it's a lot a cultural what's culturally relevant. <laughs> He'll just lost his head. <laughs> well, with that with that picture in the background, it looks like he's disappearing into a wormhole <laughs> oh, oh my no, let's not get on that <laughs> my my dogs always decide when i'm on this call doing this call that now's the perfect time to go in and out the, the back and for anyone that's that's wondering that picture in the background is the uh, sasquatch in uh circa 1951 so uh you know i just thought it was sort of fitting to have that up for today's show Oh, yeah, a lick or two of paint sure makes some improvement, doesn't it? If you look at it today. <laughs> oh, oh, boy, that's not bad. <laughs> well, I was, so, I was so glad in 2010 when they redid the outside of the place, because you remember the old grave building there. I remember standing outside of it when it's getting dark and watching the bats flying out of the wall. There were hundreds of them. And I said, I, I, I knew fully well, I'm going to go driving by here one morning. I'm going to see a big pile of ash. You know, I, I figured that was the, the 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 destiny of the Sasquatch in, but this, uh, they, uh, the people who owned it got together and decided to redo the outside and everything, and I'm certainly glad they did because now it's a landmark I hope will be there for quite some time. And they got the best burgers in the Lower Mainland. The best burgers. <laughs> they can make good pizza, too. Oh, yes. <laughs> Tell me something. Thomas, name a horror book that scared you to death and why. I'm not sure about scaring me to death. The one I enjoyed the most would have to be Stephen King's second novel, Salem's Lot. And why is that? Because I was lucky enough to read it when it first came out, and I didn't know in advance what it was about. (laughs) (laughs) And the way he wrote the story, you thought he was going in one direction. And when you finally realized what was happening, you felt like you were a resident of Jerusalem's lot. By the time you realized what was really happening, you had the sinking feeling it's too late to do much about it. Well, 
I I had to agree with you. I think that that one certainly take gets my vote as well. Yeah, I'll tell you why. Uh, and the two two TV movies they made about it didn't do the book justice, in my opinion. But you can't. You'd have to do a you'd have to do a whole ten part miniseries, each one an hour and a half long to to even get close to the details uh, Mr. King put in that book. Yeah, well, I, I think what, what got it for me was that I watched Salem's Lot, and uh, it sort of, to me, it, it brought vampires up to our level where they hobnobbed with us, you know, socially kind of, you know, and there was no helpless female involved or anything like that. This time it was a kid named Danny Glick that you know, was yeah. coming was coming after your kids yeah <laughs> i mean and like the exorcist you know the forces of evil sort of came to shake your hand and make your acquaintance you know but, well the whole thing was the main character ben mears is a writer who had a horrifying experience in this house in town that's got a reputation of being the local haunted house in town yeah because a guy named uh, marston used to do evil things there. And uh, most of the middle-aged women in the, in the timeline that the story's taken place, the mid-1970s, have very bad and, at times, erotic memories of the things they used to do as young women because they're a part of uh, sort of like a witch's cult under this guy. And later on in the book, they realized that, that uh, this Hubie Marston character who committed suicide after committing so many atrocities and who everybody feared, and whose uh, grave in the local cemetery said, his gravestone said, God grant he lies still, had written an invitation to some nobleman in Europe inviting him to Jerusalem's lot, and of course, uh, with a different name, of course. And Barlow, being what he is, waiting 50 years to do so meant nothing to him because he lives forever as long as you don't destroy him. And he shows up just at the time when this Ben Mears returns to Jerusalem to write a book about the whole childhood memory and the evils of the Marston house, just to find that the house he wanted to rent has been sold to a guy named Straker and Barlow. Nobody sees Barlow, and Straker seems to be very strange. And not only did they buy the house, they bought a, an antique store downtown and Barlow and Straker antiques. And he keeps saying, Mr. Barlow's coming. Don't worry, he's on a buying trip. He's coming. And when he arrives, you really don't know what's going on. And, and by the time I was a third way through the book and it hit me, I actually stopped reading it and started reading it from the beginning again because I was mad at myself because I missed the hints. <laughs> but it's not, it's not that I missed anything. It's just the way King wrote the book. He wrote it in such a way... That you, by the time you realize what's really happening, it's too late to do much about it. Because, well, you can give it away now because everyone knows. Seems like it's vampires, and Barlow is a vampire, and you wonder, well, how's Barlow even gotten that? Then you remember that Straker had them go pick up a box at the docks to mm -hmm. bring him in at night. Mm -hmm. yeah. He was yeah. in the friggin' box, you know. And um, and by the time he gets there, and of course. It was written in 1975, and King was really the last guy, as far as I could tell, to do the classical vampire story, the way vampires 
word, you know, before other authors came along and started changing the rules, you know, like Anne Rice and, mm -hmm. uh, you know, and Twilight, oh, glistening in the sun. <laughs> you, know, <laughs> you know, it was... Venture the grievances, Thomas. It's like, it's like an outbreak of the plague. There's one, then there's two, then four, then eight, then 16, you know, and, and there's uh, everybody is slowly being victimized. And by the time the book ends, two-thirds of the town has been changed. A quarter of the town just left because they knew something was terribly wrong. A few people came back, bought properties because of low property value, and they started to disappear, and they left. And it got to the point the town was deserted, and all the local people outside of town who were still in the area, as uh, Mr. King wrote a, a sequel called One for the Road, which was a sequel about 10 years later in the early 1980s about Jerusalem's lot. People won't say the word, but they just say, don't go near Jerusalem's lot, especially after dark. And that the was town, how the woo came about. The, the town went bad. That's all anyone knows. <laughs> yeah, that's all anyone knows. Yeah. And, and in the sequel story, this family during a blizzard get this moron decided to take a shortcut going through Jerusalem and end up getting stuck because no one's paving, no one's shoveling the roads or plowing the roads. So he got stuck and he ended up walking back to this bar, outside bar, and he left his wife and daughter in the car. And the story's about them going back to, well, of course, well, you'd have to read the story, but it was a great little sequel. It's just a short story called One for the Road that he wrote about 10 years later in the early 80s. And it's a great story about Salem's lot. And, uh, of course, in the main story, the main vampire eventually did get destroyed, but that was far too late. And they tried to burn the town down. They burned half of it down and everything. And, and uh, but it's basically left, you know, and people just don't go near the place, at least local people. That was and the and one of the big things the local people do is try to keep visitors and travelers from going there. <laughs> That was about the last of the good vampire books, yeah, as you as you said. Uh, yeah. You know, Anne Rice interview with a vampire. It's a period piece, and which, so, which, so is Lestat, which, and so is Queen yeah. of Death, and it, it's, he brought, he modernized it. Yeah, yeah, but they changed the rules, and the yeah. big thing Anne Rice did was in the old rules: if you were killed by a vampire, you became a vampire. Period. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In, in Anne Rice's world. No, you didn't. If you were killed by a vampire, you didn't necessarily become one. They had to make you drink from them. They had to change you. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, they changed the rules. That's what I'm saying. Salem's Lot was the last book to follow the old rules. You what know, did you have, Vampires Bill? is like a, like a play. There's one, then there's two, then there's four, <laughs> then there's eight, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Almost like a zombie apocalypse, really. Yeah. Well, let's, let's not get on zombie apocalypse. Yeah, yeah. We'll be here until the apocalypse. But that's just the way he wrote the book. And it's an awful long book. And it goes into great detail in all the characters. That's why some people think it's too drawn out. I don't. I thought I thought it I was. Thought it, I thought it was excellent. But I thought length like was supposed everyone else to be. at the time, it was going one way. And it just slaps you in the face when you realize what's really happened. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I wasn't sure exactly about which way it was going until yeah. a certain point. I had no preconceived ideas yeah. Yeah. whatsoever. But yeah. no, one off for King. I have every book he ever wrote on the bookshelf there. 
yeah. and the, to emphasize the difference, both miniseries changed it. Like the first two kids were two little boys who got attacked by someone when they were taking a shortcut through the woods after yeah. visiting the main kid's house. In the, in the book miniseries, to give the impression that the little boy, the first to disappear, became a vampire and, and changed his brother. No, in the book, the vampire hadn't even arrived yet. He was sacrificed mm-hmm. by, by Straker to lead the way to clear the path for Barlow's arrival. It was sort of a black magic ceremony. First, he sacrificed the dog, then he sacrificed the little boy and, and drawn out like that. So uh, Ralphie Glick, the first little boy to disappear in the story, never became a vampire. He just disappeared. Yeah. So, Bill, what uh, what is your favorite book? Well, again, like Thomas, I don't I, I, mean, I haven't read a book that actually scared me. I mean, there's and I, but I have found a couple of enjoyable. Uh, one that I that I like is called uh, "For Those Who Hunt the Night," and it's by Barbara Hamley. And uh, Barbara Hamley is best known, I think, because she did some Star Trek books back in the day. Yes, and then she also did a great <coughs> sword and sorcery series called the Darwath trilogy, which then eventually became five books. Uh, the fourth book sucks, but the first three and the fifth one, Ice Falcon's Quest, is great. Yeah, I'm familiar with her name. Soon as you said it, I've read some of her stuff. And the for those who hunt the night is an interesting one. It's a period piece. It takes place in uh, Victorian London, and what happens there is you have James Asher who was a uh, teaches uh, link uh, is a linguist that teaches at Oxford University that used to be a spy in Her Majesty's service. And in London, there is something killing the old vampires of London. So one of the elder vampires of London actually coerces this James Asher to work for him to uh, find out what's killing the old vampires of, of London. And uh, it's, it's a, it's a great book. It's, it's probably as much a, a mystery book as it is horror, because it's not a lot of, there is, you know, some horror in it, but it's more about how Asher tracks down uh, what's killing the vampires. And, and of course there's intrigue because Cedro, who's the vampire that's coercing uh, uh, James he's sort of an outcast he's one of the two eldest vampires in, in London the other eldest vampire didn't want any humans to know that there was vampires so you know they're out to also try to kill Asher if they get the opportunity and uh, it's, a, it's a great it's a great take on on the vampire legends a little bit different um you know, the, it's a different slant, definitely. It's, it's a different slant, and it's also a different slant on on how vampires can appear to to stay youthful looking, why they hate mirrors. Like in a lot of in a lot of mythology, vampires can't see themselves in mirrors, and it's because of the silver backing that used to be used in mirrors, since silver was a holy metal. An evil creature couldn't see themselves reflected because of, because of the silver backing. 
Well, in for those who hunt the night, vampires continue to age their looks as they get older, but they use basically a glamour on people. So, so people see them and other vampires see them as they want to be seen, but they don't can't do it themselves. When they actually look at a mirror, they're seeing themselves as they actually look. Mm-hmm. Okay. So a 500 year old vampire looks in a mirror and sees this decaying old 500 year old. So we're doing the, the picture of Dory in gray kind of thing. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's, you know, it's, it's good fun. It, it's a, you know, it's a short book. It's no novel by any, any means, but you know, he did, uh, she did a couple of series uh, in there. She did for those who hunt the night, which I said is really good uh, traveling with the dead, which I'm not hugely fussy on. And then there's a third book which I haven't read, which my daughter's read, that said that she says is quite good. Well, you know, and, and, I'm sorry. Go ahead. And then, like I said, for anyone that that likes you know the sword and sorcery type, um, the Darwath series is really good, and and that's almost a a different take on vampire, except for it's in a, it's you know it's in a parallel universe, and and it's not so much vampires it's almost almost um you almost say giant amoebas i mean they're 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 big and they, they attack at night and and they have a lot of the the uh similarities to the vampire legends they can't yeah. come out in day and uh it's 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 a sword and sorcery and, it, and it's a, a great trilogy yeah i like sword and sorcery i'm sure i have one of hamley's books in the bookcase too i'm just racking my brains trying to think of the title and I was uh, heavily into sword and sorcery back then, so she's in that category. <laughs> yeah, I think. Well, for me, it had it has it had to be mentioned sooner or later. My book. <clears throat> I was twenty years old, I think, when I read it. It had uh, just come out, and it was turning the world upside down in a way. And uh, that's uh, William Peter Blatty's The Exorcist. I read that book, and um, it's um, it had a very, very scary moments in it. If you're you know sitting in the house by yourself with a lively imagination at one o'clock in the morning, uh, you know, wanting to finish this thing and yet afraid to stop reading to go to bed, you know. <laughs> I got a very vivid imagination, by the way, and. Uh, I thought I thought it was so interesting because it wasn't anything like monsters and monster movies. Uh, it wasn't anything like even Stephen King, where you got a psychological uh, thriller in your hands. It's like, uh, does real evil exist? Is it possible that real evil, pure evil, exists? You know, I remember at the time I was reading that the Catholic Church was all up in arms about it. The Vatican lied about not having any exorcists on the payroll. They did. And they even said there's no such thing as exorcism anyway. Because, uh, and for that reason, I had to love the book, being a non-practicing Catholic anymore. I said, okay, I'm on Blatty's side. Bring it on. And... Um, I'm not sure when I'm explaining it right, but it made you feel like uh, the gate was open, 
So you could look at good and evil as being orchestrated by higher powers. Maybe that's a cop-out. Maybe what I'm talking about, you know, not taking responsibility for your own actions now, you know, because I know after that movie came out, not the book, after the book came out, yes, even then, there was many a claim of innocence in courts where people said the devil made me do it as an excuse for whatever crimes they committed. That's where that came from, that saying, the devil made me do it. It came after uh, Blatty's book was released. And it was, it was a real battle because it wasn't a universal monsters being glued together anymore. It was something nebulous, but it was, it was there. It was a possibility that it was there. I mean, there's no way to disprove it. I think it got you with that visceral fear. Fear. It was the book was. Un, I agree. The book was unsettling in a completely different way than most books that that you know our generation would have read before it. I, I, I think you're. I think you nailed it on the head. Yeah, you know. I think that was probably the scariest movie of all time. And I and I don't think movies are generally scary. But I think no. If if it's not the scariest movie of all time, it's it's right up there. I can't I can't remember the last movie that ever scared me. Really, I must have been a teenager or something at the time, you know. Because as an adult, I've never come across, except for The Exorcist, uh, a movie or a book that sort of opened its jaws and just swallowed me. You know, I mean, I was a victim of the book. I had to read the book from cover to cover. I couldn't chicken out. I couldn't back down. I had to see where this was going. And uh, man, it was it was uh, quite a trip, that book. And the movie was quite a trip, too. I think when we talk about movies, that might be my choice to talk about as well, book and movie. Because I, I can't think of any other book that so profoundly affected my outlook on good and evil, uh, religion, and the whole ball of wax. So, uh, well, one thing that impressed me about the movie, The Exorcist, is I, I actually read the book after I saw the movie, and mm -hmm. I was quite impressed at how well and closely the movie followed the book. Exactly, exactly. And I'm disappointed how they trail away from the book, but they didn't. Then The Exorcist, they followed the book pretty damn close. Well, you know, the thing is about that, about that, uh, I'm talking about the book now, not the movie, so I won't say much more, uh, is that um, you're right. It was very close to the book, and that's what made it so very scary. Mm -hmm. I, I think the movie itself uh, only omitted probably uh, two scenes that ended up on the cutting room floor. And uh, they didn't have a, they, they weren't missed in the movie because there was already enough horror going around anyway. And uh, yeah, so anyway, that, that was it for me, The Exorcist. And I wish I had a copy here. I'd read it again to see mm -hmm. if it has the same kind of eye-opening, profound effect. Because it made, me, it made me question religion and the Catholic Church mm -hmm. and... Uh, as a, a Satan uh, worship, uh, the whole, uh, yes, I went through my cult period too. <laughs> and uh, all of that. 
But I mean, it was an eye opener. It made me interested in this stuff. It made me interested in going out and finding out what the Wicca was about, uh, what Supernatural was about, what Anton LaVey was doing in San Francisco with the first Church of Satan, and on and on and on. And that was my my uh, little cult phase before I picked up Japanese <laughs> samurai. <laughs> You know, and I think the other thing with the with the uh, what was so disturbing about it uh, for the time, I think, and and you guys are a little bit older than me, not much, because you know I, I I'm I'm fifty six, but when that book came out, I think that was the first book that I could recall where the the person that was in, in danger to that degree was a child, and I think that was the same with the movie because usually. It was, you know, the woman that a woman that was in trouble, or or maybe an old man. But with book, both the book and the movie, the the target of the evil was was a child, and I think that affected affected a lot of people mm-hmm. because children used to be sort of taboo. You didn't you didn't go after them in the movies or the books, and and uh, and, and this one really did. And the book, another book I couldn't put down, and my parents had a bit bad effect on them, too, when they read it. As I got it, when it first came out, was the Amityville Horror, because at the time they were saying it was a true story. Yes, the Lutz family. Yeah. And I couldn't put that book down. I remember my father at the cottage up in Lake St. Peter, he was reading it. And every time he had to get up to go to the bathroom, he was turning on every light. <laughs> I know. I never did that before. Yeah. And my mother a, did the same thing. It's a, <laughs> it is. It, it is. It is another one of those books that suck you in right from the first chapter. You yeah. got to see what happens to these yeah. poor people. I, and, now think, uh, I now think it was the biggest con story, one of the biggest publishing con stories ever done. But well, the, it was because it, some, it, it, it was really, really, really good. It yeah, was a really good, good. story, yeah, yeah. And and uh, and and like you were saying, uh, whenever I went into a dark room, I looked for shining pig's eyes in the window too. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the pig in the basement in a well—that just got to me. I don't know. <laughs> if I go in a room, there's more than four or five flies flying around. I start to wonder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, uh, what what movie would you pick, Thomas? One of my favorite, not because of, but just the atmosphere of it, is I always had a fascination as well growing up with uh, ghost stories and just ghost stories in general. Eh? Not necessarily horror stories, but a good ghost story. Yeah. So when it comes to movies, my favorite ghost story has got to be the 1963 version of The Haunting, based on the book The Haunting of Hill House by Shirley Jackson. That movie was, in my opinion, outstanding, and it still holds today because one of the biggest mistakes they do today, and they did it with the remake, they tried to remake The Haunting in the mid-'90s with Liam Neeson. and uh, uh, that, was, that was a disaster. Yeah, it was terrible because they went overboard with, you know, I mean, the bedroom tries to eat her, and she still doesn't believe in ghosts. But, anyway, <laughs> you know, the original... It was more like what a real haunting is like, and it was it was just outstanding. You know, it was more the tension than anything else. You know, the you're looking at the poster, the remake there. Yeah, that the remake. That's yeah, the remake. crap. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah that's yeah. the crap one. That's the crap. One. You want the 1963 <laughs> one? Yeah. 
Well, you know what, what got me about that movie was done in black and white. The special effects yeah. were astounding. The camera work was amazing. And you really believe these people were in deep doo-doo. Yeah. You really, you really, you really did. Because it's about a bunch of paranormal ghost hunters and whatnot who want to spend time in a haunted house because it's supposed to be haunted. Yeah, the pro- the professor was out to prove the existence of life after death, and that's why they were there. And this one woman who was uh, uh, played by Julie Harris, whose character was absolutely annoying. I mean, she just belly mm-hmm. ate all the time. But she seemed to be the main focus of the attention of the house. A woman named Eleanor, who spent most of her life taking care of her very mean, dying mother. And this was her first chance to get away and actually do something. And what does she do? She ends up going with paranormal research to a haunted house in New England. Hill House. A house that was born bad. And, you know, thank God it was made in the 50s because they didn't have light meters as they wandered around looking for coal zones. You know, and and it just grabs you, like the first paragraph of the book. Oh, yeah. paragraph, I've almost memorized it. An evil old house, the kind some call haunted. It's like an undiscovered country waiting to be born. Hill House has stood for 90 years and may stand for 90 more. Silence lays steady against the wooden stone of Hill House, and whatever walks there, walks alone. We'll make a campfire, Bill. I'll get the schmuckers. <laughs> yeah, well, that, that's almost as good as the boneless men—men men yeah. without bones. Without yeah, them. but what uh, you know? But that's a must-see horror flick. If you ever get a chance on Netflix or Prime or wherever. You download it from Pirate Bay, whatever. If if uh, if they have any uh, if they have any uh, feeders there, uh, you must really do it because you know these guys were quite unprepared for what they ran into in that house. Mm-hmm. And like I said, the special effects uh, all these guys had were their convictions and their belief in what they believed was possible and what wasn't and what could be possible. Blah blah blah. It was quite a story. It was at the haunting. Yeah, man, right till this day, it's got to be up there in the top three movies ever made. The original one, the black and white one. The Haunting, 1963, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, you have a movie, Bill? Yeah, I... uh, One of my favorite, this this goes back, the backstory is, I, I was... I was growing up, I never had sort of like, don't watch this or don't watch that for my dad. Or my mm-hmm. mom. And when I was seven, I watched Vincent Price's old Scream and Scream Again. <laughs> and, I've never heard of it. Oh, it was one of the old, you know, one of the old, uh, you know, not sure if it was Hammer, but it was one of those series that he did. And it's not the greatest movie that, that goes on all time. But as again, I was seven years old when I watched it. And part of it, you have this jogger that he was running down the road and had, had heart attack-like symptoms. And it shows that he's he's in the hospital and he's uh, all freaked out. He's going, you know, nurse, nurse, nurse. And the nurse comes in and she's sort of ignoring him. And he throws off his, his sheet and one of his legs have been amputated. And he's freaked out about this. And then the nurse basically puts the anesthetic in his mouth movie goes on for a little while later and there's 
what they think is a vampire out there that's killing people at the same time. Then it goes back to this guy in the, in the hospital room and he's freaking out, similar sort of thing. And this time, it, both legs are missing. <laughs> okay. And then, of course, and then it's a little later, it's, you know, and at the same time, they're looking for this vampire that's out there. And then he has an arm missing. And then he's there with both arms missing. And then it shows. It's starting to sound like a Monty Python skit, you know? <laughs> and, and, then, and then it shows him throwing a headless torso into a vat of, of acid. And, uh, you know, in the end, it's, it wasn't a real vampire. It was, it was a serial killer out there that was using basically a, a, a big two-pronged fork to stab into the neck of his victims to make it them bleed out and make it look like it was a vampire. But wasn't Peter Cushing in that too? I can't remember. I was, I said, like I said, I was only seven at the time. That was in my life, probably the only movie that really scared me. And then, you know, as I got older, it was like, you saw, okay, it's a pretty cheesy movie. It's, it's not like if you were to watch it now. Yeah, wasn't it? Wasn't there one scene where they thought they caught the vampire and they had him handcuffed to the bumper of the car, and he ends up getting away, and they realize he pulled his hand off, and it's still hanging from the bumper. Of the yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I remember that movie. Yeah. But with me, like with horrors, like I, I love the cheesy ones. Like I'm not a great one for. Like if it, if you want to watch slasher movies, Hostel, uh, Jigsaw or Saw or any whatever it is, Saw, any of those type, I'm not interested. I'm not interested in the slasher type. I've saw, I've I've watched the Rob Zombie movies. I've watched, you know, all the yeah. Halloween and Friday. Yeah. They don't do anything for me. They bore the hell out of me, to be quite honest. But I do like. Like you want to throw on a bad Bruce Campbell movie, on there. You know, Alien Apocalypse, probably, I mean, it's not even a B movie. It's probably a D or an E movie. Stupid as all hell, I'll watch it. Dead don't you die. Know. You know, you know, for me, for me, I'm, I'm much the same. Uh, but uh, I remember watching a show as a kid. I was probably about 12, 13 years old. Scared the dickens out of me at the time. Old black and white. And it fits in with our theme. Black and white movie called The Abominable Snowman. <laughs> Peter Cushion, Forrest Tucker, and some forgettable actor. <laughs> that's, the, that's, that's the movie it I watched. It scared the that. hell out of me. I, I, I went, when the injured guy was in the tent and this, this uh, leathery hand full of fur on top comes in and grabs the gun and starts twisting it. Mm. And the other guys come and scare it off. And at the end, when Peter Cushion is in the cave and Two of them come into the cave after him, and the lights were just shining on their eyes, you know. I thought that was the scariest thing. I saw it again about two weeks ago on Netflix. <laughs> I said, this has to be one of the dumbest movies ever made. I mean, styrofoam <laughs> for snow banks, uh, props that were made out of plastic. Uh, oh, my God. I when I was a kid, I should have been asleep. When I walked in, my parents were watching. That was the one? That was the one. The bottom of snowman in the Himalayas, it was called, yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. You, should be, you should be taking some kind of therapy or something for that, man. <laughs> Because the subject a child to that is unusual behavior by any stretch. 
That was the dumbest, hokiest, and uh, the, 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 the Tibetan lamas, I don't know what they were about. I, I could never figure it out. And uh, it, was, it was just, it was a wild macabre ride <laughs> over hill and dale <laughs> as they searched for these abominable snowmen. I still, I, I still think Peter Cushing was based on Peter Byrne and Forrest Tucker was supposed, supposed to be uh, that Texas millionaire Tom Slick. <laughs> Slick. Oh, yeah, that, that could very well be. It, it was much like that, wasn't it? It was yeah, much yeah. like that. Yeah, change it from uh, Antarctica to India or something, and you got a story going. Yeah. Well, so the, players, Nepal, yeah. Yeah. You know, it's funny. I don't recall in all the, you know, in all the years, and I and I watch I'm, I watch bad monster movies and I watch bad horrors. I mean, I'm a huge Godzilla fan. Um, you know, all those old Hammer films, like you oh, were yeah. talking earlier, love them. But you know, I don't think I've ever seen a good Sasquatch horror film. No, I know. I know a lot of people like exist. There's no such thing. You know, exists. I thought was a stupid movie. Um, as much. Uh, oh, the one that Bob Cat Goldwaith uh, uh, directed. Um, what do you like it, Thomas? Who directed it? Bobcat Goldwaith. You know, it's the one Bluff Creek. You where you don't know what the end if it was a Sasquatch or a psycho. Oh, 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 uh, uh, Willow Creek. Willow, yeah, Willow Creek. Mm. You know, I've never seen a good Sasquatch one. I, I think Willow Creek was stupid. I thought. You know, exist, which is another one a lot of people like was stupid. I have to disagree with you there, Bill, because I saw one that scared the heck out of me the first three times I saw it, and that was the legend of Boggy Creek. Oh, that that one I I will see. I forgot about that one. <laughs> I loved that one. The legend of Boggy Creek was I loved it, um, and the other one that that. I did like was a movie and it's not a great movie, but it was just because of my, I like bad movies was the creature from black Lake. Yeah. The unofficial sequel, the Lodge of the Boggy Creek. Well, that, you know, yeah, that had, but it had Jackie Lamb in there and Jackie Lamb was one of oh, my Tarzan. <laughs> no, 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 Jack. Elam. Elam. Yes. Yes. Yeah, the old Western character. Actor yeah. Yeah. Um, no, but like, if you want to see a really bad Sasquatch movie, there's so many. Yeah, watch Hoax. Hoax. Hoax, okay. and watch <laughs> and watch it right to the bitter end because as the movie's going along, it sort of rides to the edge where it could be a good movie uh -huh. a, or a bad movie, and then right at the end, you're thinking, oh, "Okay, it's not bad," and then they have a plot twist. In the very last scene, and you go, "What the hell did I just watch? I just wasted two hours of my life." I I think the worst Sasquatch cheap horror film I ever saw was one called made in the late seventies called Snow Beast. Oh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, awful, just awful. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's supposed to be the Sasquatch view all the time, you know, and it's kind of another cheap takeoff of Jaws, I guess. Ski Lodge, or the guy who played Buford Pussers, uh, and then uh. Walking Tall movies was in it. And 
Oh, and Cliff Walker was in it, the guy who, who was a good actor in the movie movie Night of the Grizzly back in the 50s, back in the day, but he was in it. And uh, all about this, you got this mayor and this who's running this town lodge and she's all wants this winter carnival to go off and she's determined to keep it going even though skiers are starting to disappear. And of course, the winter carnival is nothing but a school gymnasium with a couple of tables and banners on top of it. It was a really cheap movie. Oh well, they um, had this. They had the same yeah, thing. I forget yeah. the name of it. They just moved it from the mountains yeah. to the ocean. Yeah. They had this big yeah. uh, fair going on in the yeah. ocean because it was going to revive the town, and the mayor was, you know, steadfast, uh, you know, in only, favor. The only thing of the creature you saw was. Shots in the face was about to attack somebody that the person going, ah, there's a big hairy hand goes. <laughs> <laughs> uh, another, another real bad That's a pretty guy. cheap bad guy. Oh, one bad. hand. Snow beast. <laughs> Snow beast. Another real bad one was called Bigfoot. And it had, remember uh, Danny Bonaduce from. Oh, Park I Valley? heard about that. I never saw that one, but I heard about it. Well, he, he's, he's playing a, a, uh, an, a DJ. That's doing old '80s rock. That's trying to do a, a a rock festival in this little town, and of course, when he's doing it, there's a Bigfoot going around killing people. Uh-huh. But this thing is like, well, it's big enough that it stomps people to death, and the and the feet are about the size of the person. <laughs> don't call him Bigfoot for nothing. <laughs> so I mean, the thing's got to be I don't know, forty feet tall, fifty feet tall, and I remember oh, there's one scene in it. Sounds like it's from Alberta. (laughs) There's there's one scene in it where this guy's in a little Zodiac and the water's in a stream and the water's probably two feet deep. And all of a sudden you hear this boom, boom, as the the Bigfoot's walking towards the guy. The guy's, instead of getting out and running like hell, he's trying to paddle this boat like two feet of water to get away from this thing. It just comes and stomps. (laughs) <laughs> I got like, I just like Bambi. I've heard about this one. I have never seen it. Well, I've now, yeah, now yeah. you don't have to. Now I don't have to. <laughs> we only got so many years left in our lives, man. Pick yeah. them wisely. <laughs> I, I'll, I'll tell you, if you have a Roku device or a Roku smart TV, and you have uh, Cody, which is you can have on the computer or on your Roku, you have Cody. Netflix and Amazon Prime, you can watch more bad horror films. Oh man, schlock, pure schlock, as they used to say back in the 70s. Yeah. Yep, just type in Sasquatch Man and you see the list of titles coming up that you could watch right now at your fingertips. Well, they're, they're probably the easiest schlock movie to make on a budget. You basically need one bad costume, some trees somewhere. That's about it. Well, that's it. And you get you get four or five girls with nice big boobs. You know your victims. <laughs> there you go. Fresh meat. Horror movie. Yeah, yeah. Fresh meat. Yeah. yeah. Bring on the meat. Yeah. No, for me with movies again. Uh, I'm sorry to get sidetracked on Sasquatch of all things on these podcasts for me to talk about. I apologize for talking about Sasquatch. Yeah, <laughs> but for me again, the movie. Is same as the book, The Exorcist. Mm-hmm. And for reasons, one of which you mentioned, 
the movie stuck right to the book. Very few of them do, but it stuck right with the book. And it had a bunch of B-list actors because nobody in Hollywood wanted to touch it, even though Blatty had a million seller with the book. Which, which mean, movie are you talking about now? The Exorcist. Oh, no one, no actor in Hollywood wanted to touch it. No director or producer wanted anything to do with it. So that's why nobody famous, really famous, appears in it. I mean, Anne Bancroft or somebody was in it. That's about it. And at that time, she was a B actor at well, that time. Who, who was the old priest? He was a famous actor. Max, Max von Sydow. Oh, yeah. 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 But, you know, how many movies did he appear in? I mean, he was getting pretty well up there in those yeah, days. Yeah. But, uh, you know, but from the first few minutes of the movie, man, you you know that no mere mortals could fix this one. And when it comes <laughs> to the this movie, was heavy-duty stuff. I always remember. I mean, it the would first, take... The first sequel to The Exorcist, the Exorcist 2, it was a piece of crap. Oh, yeah. The Exorcist 3 with George C. Scott was the first real true sequel to the first movie, and it was pretty damn good as well. Yeah. But I mean, the, the Exorcist, the, 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 I mean, I got to give it props for the uh, special effects. They were amazing. Back in the I, I am telling you, you will never look, watch this movie and you'll never look at pea soup again. <laughs> I can tell I you that. Sorry, because sorry, Linda, Linda Blair doing a 360 degree pirouette with her head, power puking green pea soup out of her mouth. That's not a thing you soon forget. I can't get over the. There's a woman who did the, the demon voices. I can't remember her name. She just passed away very recently. And she said she changed smoke three packs of cigarettes a day to do the voice. And she and there was another guy who did the voice because sometimes it was a male Englishman. Like, oh, you know what your blank, blank, blank daughter is doing, you know, when her head spawned. That was a guy who did that one. But uh, the woman who mainly did the voice of the demon out of Linda Blair. You know, I think I think I think you hit the nail on the head there uh, uh, when you said that what really got the people about it, that it was a child, a female yeah. child. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's not stated. It's not stated. But you sort of figure out that's exactly what the demon wanted. And apparently because he knew it would take something like that to get Karis out of retirement. So they could have their last battle together. I, I think the author of the book was a guy named Peter Benchley. Blatty. Blatty, okay. Yeah, and, William, and, William, uh, William, William Peter Blatty. Okay. And he barely based the story on an actual exorcism that was yeah. actually a young man yeah. rather than a woman. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think that took place in the Middle East. If I, I, well, I thought mistaken. it was Germany, but I, I could be wrong. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, I mean, the, the thing about that got me about it is the great lengths that the Catholic Church, as I said, went through to poo-poo this movie, saying there's no such thing, no exorcism has ever happened. And uh, yes, they do have rules for exorcism, but, you know, to become an exorcist, you've got to be practically in sainthood, you know, and you've got to go through rigorous courses and training and everything like that. Well, before I ever really got, I was able to get involved in the Sasquatch mystery in the late 70s there, I spent some time with some other high school kids that were interested actually doing some investigation in alleged haunted houses in, in the Toronto area. 
You know, I went and visited the McKinney. That, that sounds cool. You yeah. know, I mean, we we poo poo paranormal and yeah. everything here, but I know yeah. all three of us have a definite interest yeah. in the paranormal right. and such and like I that. Got, when I got to Calgary, I I uh, around Halloween time, I, I I visited the Dean House and the Prince House and Heritage Park and all the mm-hmm. other supposed haunted buildings, and I remember that Heritage Park's official policy was deny, deny, deny. Deny, deny, deny. Anytime any stories of any sightings of ghosts in the Prince House or something would come in, they would deny, deny, deny. And I thought I would play, I think I played a part in it. And I remember this is the early, early to mid 80s now. I said, why are you always denying it? You should push it. Have haunted yeah, house yeah. tours around Halloween time. Publish a little pamphlet or something on the, on the haunted stories. Push it. It's another attraction. Because you stand outside the main gate of the Prince House, what are people talking And listen to the people talk as they enter it. What are they talking about? Are they talking about the Victorian history? Are they talking about the Victorian architecture? No, they're talking about ghosts. Yeah. And that's why they're there. <laughs> you know? Everybody loves yeah. ghosts. Yeah. So mm-hmm. and that's what they did. Now, Heritage Park, at least what I heard, has annual, around this time of year, has haunted house tours because half the buildings in the place have a history of hauntings in them and they've published a little book ghost stories of heritage park yeah yeah you know i wish they i wish they had a good uh, uh paranormal program on television Instead of the garbage, those programs that are made in Britain and uh, in the States. The thing I like about them, and there was one that was on, and it was Linda Blair. The sound is over there. Why are you going that way? Go that way. The point I'm trying to make is the woman who hosted was the little woman who who was the little media for the movie, Poltergeist. Yeah. And they didn't have to do a damn thing. They actually went to real buildings with real histories like the Tower of London, like Edinburgh Castle, like in Britain. And they didn't have to do a thing. People would go in there at night, and just the sound of the normal sounds a house makes at night were freaking them out. Mm -hmm. They were spooking themselves. They didn't have to fake anything. (laughs) It's just the way the atmosphere, and they're so tensed up that... A, a door shutter banging in the wind made them jump out of their skin. It was hilarious. I can't remember what the show was called, but it was hosted by Linda Blair. And, and the woman who narrated it was the little woman who, who's passed away, the little actress who was the medium in the movie Poltergeist. Yeah, well, what got me yeah. is that you got these uh, paranormalists and they're in there to investigate to find yeah. out if the claims are real or not. And the first slightest bit of evidence have them screaming and running in the opposite direction. My first thought is, why are you going in there at night when you can't see it? <laughs> yeah, bring a light with you, you know? String up a string of lights and a generator. Yeah. So, you know, just Rolling back a bit, uh, two. I'm going to bring up three points. Uh, the first two about are about The Exorcist. One, I'm not sure if you guys are aware, but Linda Blair starred in a parody of The Exorcist called Repossessed, which supposedly took twenty place twenty years after The Exorcism. Really, I'm, I was not aware of that. Yeah, and wasn't that The Exorcist too? No, it was called Repossessed, and it was a spoof. Oh, okay. okay. And it had. Um, just the title will tell you that. <laughs> uh, it had the, uh, he starred in, in uh, The Naked Gun. Um, 
Yeah. 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 He, he, he play he plays the old priest. Oh God. Here we go. Uh, yeah. It, it's a funny movie. Um, the second point on The Exorcist is is when you talk about impact, I had a cousin who uh, at the time the exorcist was in her 30s, and she was not a a well person. Mm-hmm. And she went to see The Exorcist in the movie theater, and she was actually convinced after seeing it that she was possessed, and she actually um, had a little stay in in Essendale to help her through it. So a lot of people forget when you're talking about you know the the impact of The Exorcist that it had some severe repercussions on some people that were not the most stable. And uh, I have to tell you, Bill, that you're absolutely correct. I mean, people uh, lost sight of the fact that when this thing first played, the movie in New York and uh, places like that, the premier had premieres. There were people having heart attacks. There were people falling down in the aisles. There were ambulances coming to theaters there were people that, you know, within the first half hour of the movie just left virtually shrieking. I know this sounds like an old pitch from the 50s about a movie that you must see. Because you know, Jerry, Jerry, but, I, I mean, this is actual truth. This had a well, you know, terrible. Jerry, I, I, I heard that, too. And I remember seeing stories on the news about that. And so this woman uh, crying, lying down, and boyfriend had to take her out of the picture because it was too much for itself. But I went to see the accident with my girlfriend, and I saw nobody get sick or run out. So, well, I can just uh, say with my my aunt or sorry, my cousin, and again, she wasn't a stable person. She had she had mental issues her her whole life, but she for whatever reason decided to go see that film. Yeah, it was the wrong and, film for her to see. Yeah, and, and it was yeah. And I mean, she, so I mean, there there were people affected, mm-hmm. and the last thing. If you ever get the chance to watch this paranormal series, it only lasted one season. And it was on uh, on Newfie TV. It was called uh, uh, Newfoundland Paranormal. Mm-hmm. And they went to uh, old buildings in Newfoundland and they did investigations. And part of why I think it only lasted one season is they did... It's like what you know. If you went to a Sasquatch research, yeah. If you did what we actually did, it would only last a season. That's right. That's because right. when these people went in, if they went into a building and nothing happened, you had a half-hour show of them doing things and nothing happened. And one of my favorite was there was they were in this old, and I can't remember the whole. Uh, Order. It was either a monastery first that then burnt down and became a hotel that burnt down and became a, a, a tavern, or it was one or the other. But it was it had burnt down twice, but it had been one of those three type of buildings every time. So you had this the, the older guy, he's down in the basement where there's supposed to be a, a shadow person, and he's down there and he's and he's just drinking a cup of tea. And he's having tea talking to the camera. And something happens, and he goes, are you disturbing my tea? How rude. And then he listens, and nothing more happens. And it was like, you think about it, you go, well, it's dumb. Well, it's, 
it was it was a real investigations. Like I remember there were at some at a lighthouse where some strange things happened. And it was more believable because when you watched all their shows, if nothing happened, nothing happened. And they told you yeah. again, we can't say that this is a haunted house or not because nothing happened when we were here. And that's exactly the reason they were killed. You're absolutely correct. That's why that show was knifed. Did you ever see the the uh, um, pilot that myself and uh, Kirk, uh, John Kirk and Thomas, uh, who was with us, Adam, or was it? Uh, uh, the, Barry Blount, the late Barry Blount. No, 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 no. Before Barry Blount ever came along. It was uh, Sebastian. Was it Sebastian or Adam? came out to the island with us. Myself, you, John Kirk, I think it was Sebastian. Well, could have been, yeah. Can't remember. Nothing ever came of that show. Anyway, we made, uh, you must have a copy there. Have you seen it, Bill? No, never have. You should, you should see it because it, it was, it was going to be an anthology type thing. And we were going to be going every week to visit a different person who filed a report and to interview them about that report and show the area where the report took place. And uh, we uh, we uh, talked to this lady from Half Moon Bay, and uh, she was fantastic. And um, we put it in the can, brought it back, went to the Toronto Fest, Film Festival or whatever it was. And uh, Bobo and the gang beat us out because that was the year they started in search of Bigfoot or whatever. So they blew us out of the water. But this is exactly like what you're talking about. We interviewed uh, this person. She told us a story. She showed us where it happened. We, we talked to family members on camera, the whole deal. And uh, it was actually, it showed the reality of being a Sasquatch researcher, you know, it showed what it's actually like going out into the field and talking to people and everything. There was no sensationalism involved whatsoever. And uh, which is why they probably rejected it. Uh, yeah, you know, I mean, it's just like it's just like this podcast, you know, not everybody's cup of tea. Give me a monster story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's taken for granted. You know, I told right at the beginning, we will not do any hoaxing or dramatization that's not yeah. true. Yeah. And, uh, and well, next time, next time Bill is over, you should dig it out and play it for him. I don't have it. I never, I only saw a bit of it. Really? I never, I never got a piece of it. If I do, I got it on DVD somewhere, but no, I, I never got it. I was shown a bit of it. And, uh, and far as I knew it, it was never, I never saw the finished product. Oh, I got it here. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Hmm. Okay. Uh, it's on DVD. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm currently on stick, so I got no way to watch it anyway, unless I... Uh, next time I'm busy, you can show it. But, <laughs> yes, most certainly. Most cer- I know I, I would have played it a long time ago. I thought you'd seen it many a, a time. But uh, but anyway, yeah, it's, uh, it's too bad. It's sensationalism sells, as they say. And when the truth becomes legend, print the legend, mm-hmm. according to Mark Twain. And smart fellow, Mr. Twain. Yeah. Well, I was thinking about that case. I remember is at the time, a little girl, well, she's a 13-year-old teenager when we were there. But when it happened, she was just a little girl. Her mother 
never wow. thought for years that she'd even seen it. And all of a sudden she said one day, mommy, what about that big monkey we saw across the road? And you did see it. <laughs> yeah. Kids are wonderful. Yeah. Kids are wonderful. Bill, what are you dressing up as Halloween? <laughs> Maybe what I'll do. And you're only sharing it with a few hundred people, not many. So, you know. Put on a, these glasses. Oh, yeah. My daughter's Santa hat. And I think I'd make a jolly good fellow. You'd make a jolly good fellow. Oh, God. What about you, Thomas? I see you got your pumpkin behind you, ready to be carved. Yeah, car I've always carved a jack-o'-lantern because the tradition in Halloween is the jack-o'-lantern uh, protects you from the bad spirits that night. So I keep following the tradition because I haven't had a trick-or-treater around here in 21 years. <laughs> That's because of your nature. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> people kind of avoid me. I, after after we after we go off the air with this, it'll be Thomas over there with the carving knife. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Who knows what I, darkness lurks in the hand of in the heart of men? The old, remember, remember the old mansion that was across the street from me in my old address, the Catherwood Mansion. Mm. Catherwood told me. Pat Catherwood told me. He said. You got to stop talking to stories. We're buying and spending a fortune on cam. We're not getting any kids anymore. The reason why they weren't getting any kids is because I was telling them stories about that house. Don't go near the Catholic house. <laughs> oh, you don't want to go there. <laughs> Bad things happen at the Catholic house. But if you do go there and come back, share your candy with me. Yeah, that's why I always said that the house is gone now. They just tore it down a couple of years ago, but the old Catholic house was sort of like a little mansion. Right on Highway 10. I always thought if they ever did a film version of Salem's Lot, Hatsik would be a perfect fill-in for the town, and the Catholic House would be the Marston House. You know, it was perfect. Would have been well, great. Yeah. Uh, on that note, we'll leave Thomas with his lively imagination, and Bill has to go practice his ho 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 ho. <laughs> he got the wrong holiday, but it's no point in talking to him. <laughs> Can't wait to see what he dresses like at Christmas. <laughs> like I said, one of my favorite things, especially around Halloween time, we ever went and had a camp out and their kids along was tell them the story about the men without bones. The men without bones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because if you, you can't should, trauma, if you can't traumatize kids in a camping trip or in Halloween, what's the point of having them? Well, absolutely. <laughs> you know, you're going to have to do on a podcast, you're going to have to do men without bones. Yeah, because that is your forte. When you camp and lay down. I heard, I heard you tell that about ten years ago, and I've never <laughs> forgotten it. Never. <laughs> Men without bones. Men without bones. My yeah. uncles terrified me of that with a storm when I was a kid. I've passed on her today. <laughs> when you're camping, <laughs> when you're camping late at night, keep your fire burning bright because they don't like it in the light. The men without bones. <laughs> we'll have to film it around the campfire one night, Thomas. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Even if it's a propane campfire, <laughs> whatever we can get going. Yeah. Gentlemen, thank you for coming out this night before All Hallow Eve and uh, spreading some mirth and joy among friends and foes alike. It was a good talk, guys. Appreciate it. We have to do it again soon, of course. 
Intrepid, Thomas Steenberg, it's been a pleasure. Ingenious buddy, Bill, it's been an that? absolute pleasure. What's that? That's right. That's right. There we go. Yeah. yeah. It's time to fade to black. It's time to fade to black. <laughs> the voices in Thomas's head are coming out. Oh, my God. I'm out of here. Thank you, guys. Have a good one. Happy Halloween, everybody. <laughs> Ashes, 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 ashes.